0: Thank you. Yes. Let's appreciate our worship team. Jason, thank you so much. It's, uh, it's great to be reminded of God's mercy um, in His grace in our lives. It's one of those things that just we have to be renewed in our thoughts about who we are and what God's done for us. That's what we've been kind of talking about this, uh, this week in this teaching series. And uh, I, I've, I've shared it, but I I just want to share it again. Um, The truth of who we are in Christ has got to be received, and we need to renew our minds in it over and over again, because the enemy lies to us. And our our minds kind of receive these lies, and these tapes play over in our head, and it's truth that kind of disrupts those lies. But that truth has to be continually received and continually experienced and continually obeyed. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 8 that if you abide in my words, then you're truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. It's that abiding in the word that puts us in the place where we are receiving the truth and we know the truth, and the truth is setting us free. So this is where we've been studying over the past couple of days. We started off in Romans chapter 5, and we talked about how our... Identity determines our destiny. And we looked at the end of Romans 5, where the Apostle Paul is comparing Adam and Christ and who we were in Adam and who we now are in Christ. And uh, we we developed from the scriptures that in Adam we developed a spiritual history that's characterized by, by death and separation and condemnation. But in Christ, we have a new spiritual history and identity of grace and righteousness. And so now we are actually in Christ, and the Apostle Paul uses that phrase to be in Christ about 170 times in the New Testament. It really is a tantamount to what it really means to be a Christian. It has, it has to do with having a whole spiritual uh, identity refreshed and renewed for us, so that's what's true of Christ is now true for us. And we start unpacking, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be in Christ? And so we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, and we saw that in Christ, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. It says in Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then Paul enumerates what some of those spiritual blessings are. Not all of them, but just a select few in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 to kind of reinforce for us that we have been blessed already. And and so coming to understand these spiritual blessings revolutionizes our Christian experience. Our identity comes more into focus, and that determines the direction of our lives and the motivation for living our lives, because we're living out of this new relationship with Christ. And then last night, we talked about uh, in Christ, we are co-crucified, co-resurrected, and co-seated with Christ. And we saw how baptism is this great spiritual symbol that represents a deep theological and practical truth. And that is that we were buried with Christ in baptism. We died with Christ. But we were raised up out of the water with Christ. Raised up, identified with Christ's resurrection. So we actually have resurrection life. And that Christ actually lives inside of us. We looked at that verse, Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ actually lives in me. So we are in Christ and Christ is in us, and then we unpack from Ephesians chapter two, just at the very end of our teaching, that we were made alive with Christ, we were raised up with Christ, and we were seated with Christ. I just want to return to that just for a little bit before we go into what I want to maybe develop more fully this evening, because I understand that that might be a brand new realization for some of us that we're actually seated with Jesus Christ. But that's what the Scripture says. It says in Ephesians two four. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with Christ in heavenly places. So, our spiritual position is that we're seated with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 3 Therefore, since you've been raised up with Christ, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not the things on earth, for you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I made the, the point just at the very end of our teaching that that because we're seated with Christ, we share in Christ's spiritual authority. And that's, that's just what I want to touch on real briefly. Um You might want to write these scriptures down. We won't look at all of them in depth, but I want to give them to you so you can look at them. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out his apostles on a short term mission. And in Luke 9 1 and 2, part of their being sent out is that Jesus gives them authority to cast out demons and to heal in Jesus' name and to preach the gospel in Jesus' name. In Luke uh, chapter 10, Jesus sends out another group. They're not the apostles. They're the 70 that he sends out. So we we come to understand that in in the life of Jesus, there were the immediate apostolic band, those disciples that we know of. But then there was a larger group of people that also followed along with Jesus that they're like the nameless folks that are going to come up to us in heaven and say, I was one of the 70. I was one of those guys. You know, my name's not in the Bible, but I was one of those guys. Uh, It's this group of people And in Luke chapter 10, they too are sent out, and when they come back in Luke 10, 17 to 20, he says, I saw Satan falling like not lightning, this is what Jesus says, because I had given you authority to trample on scorpions and serpents and to set people free. So I'm pointing that out to you because sometimes we have heard or we've been taught or we think well, the apostles had spiritual authority because they were kind of unique. They're, they're non-repeated people because they walked with Jesus, they saw the resurrection of Jesus, and so they had special apostolic gifts, and that was something just unique to the apostles, but not for followers of Jesus today. But Luke chapter 10 says he sends out another group who were just followers, disciples, and he also gave them authority In the area of spiritual warfare, and they could cast out demons, and they also could heal people. And then at the very end of Jesus' ministry, after his death, after his resurrection, in Matthew chapter 28, remember what it says in the Great Commission? Before Jesus says, Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the commanded in law, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. What does Jesus say? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. In Matthew chapter 16, jesus they're up at Caesarea Philippi, and uh, Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And they say, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Remember Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but it was given to you by my Father who is in heaven. And then he says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, you might think, well, that was just for Peter, or that was just for the apostles. But then over in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, When two of you are gathered together in prayer, there I'm in your midst. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Where two or three are gathered, I'm in your midst. Jesus applies what he said in Matthew 16 over in Matthew 18, not just to the apostles, but to any of his followers, and he relates it specifically to prayer. Now you come to this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. He raised us up with Christ, and he seated us with Jesus Christ. Right before Ephesians 2 is the very end of Ephesians 1. At the very end of Ephesians 1, it says that Paul is praying this prayer of spiritual uh, insight and, and relationship with God. With, uh, Uh, With God that that these truths about our blessings in Christ might be realized with us and he says I pray that God might give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better so that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you might know the riches of the inheritance of the saints and you might know the, the truths of his calling upon your life and that you might know the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe these he demonstrated in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Jesus Christ was seated at the right hand of the Father to a place of absolute spiritual authority over all human, angelic, and demonic beings. So Jesus' seating is to the place of absolute spiritual authority, and we have been co-crucified with Christ, co-raised up with Christ, co-seated with Christ. So now you tie together... Luke 9, Luke 10, Matthew 28, Matthew 16, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. And you have a theology that the believer in Jesus Christ has the spiritual authority of Christ over demonic spirits. Every believer has as a birthright, as, a, as part of their spiritual blessings in Christ, authority in Christ. Now... We've been talking, uh, every, every, like every night I gave you a little different el- story about you can have something but be ignorant of it and not know that you have it. First, I talked about I could put money in your account, and if you didn't know there was any money in your account, you'd still be living off whatever you thought how much money was in there. But if I showed you a deposit slip that I put a million dollars in your bank account, now all of a sudden you realize I got a lot more money than I thought I did, and it probably changed the way you live and how you spent your money. Talked about the cheese and cracker Christian, the guy who gets the ticket to take the ship across the, to the Atlantic to, to Europe and is you know just desperate for some food. And the captain tells him, you get all the meals on the price of your ticket. So as soon as he bought his ticket, he had all the meals, even though he didn't know that that was true. Talked about Farmer Yates, true story. He owned all this land, and he's living in poverty, and they come out and drill on his land. They find the biggest oil deposit in Texas, and overnight he becomes a multimillionaire. He owned the mineral rights as soon as he bought the land. So it's possible to be a believer and not know all of your spiritual blessings and not know all of your spiritual resources and not know all that's available for you in Christ. But when you come to know the truth and you put that truth into practice, according to John 8, what does it do? Sets you free. It sets you free. So the truth of our authority in Christ isn't about how powerful you try to live your life or or how loud you yell at the devil it's what's true and are you living in the realm of the truth um i i told you i i before i felt god call me to ministry i wanted to be a football coach i played football in high school played football in college and that's what I thought I, I wanted to wanted to be. I, I love football. I love I love college football more than NFL professional football. But um, you know, since I even since I played football, guys have gotten a lot bigger and a lot stronger and a lot faster. Like now, the guys the guys that are are at high school at, at like top large high schools they're almost as big as the guys that played in professional football back when I was playing high school football. in in our area we got. A a lot of big schools. uh, There's a a Catholic school near where I live, Santa Margarita Catholic School. Their offensive line averaged over 300 pounds. These are high school kids, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids, and the average offensive lineman was over 300 pounds. So you think in the NFL, these guys are big. So you got the offensive lineman, you got the defensive lineman, you got the running backs, you got the linebackers, all these big. Which? Who Of everybody that's on a field in a football game, who do you think has the most authority? Who? The umpire, the the guy in the striped shirt. (laughs) He throws a flag, it's done. He calls a penalty, that's done. And he didn't have to be a big guy, and he didn't have to yell. All he has to do is throw the yellow flag, and that's it. You know why? He's got authority. He didn't have to be big and strong and mean and... Gary, he has authority. Every believer has the authority of Jesus Christ. And when we come to understand that and by faith appropriate it and walk in it, it changes the trajectory of our life, especially in terms of how we live and engage in the spiritual battle. Because we actually have the authority to rebuke Satan. James says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he must flee from you. So, part of our identity in Christ is we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We've been crucified with Christ. We've been raised up with Christ. Christ now lives in us, and we have been seated with Christ to share in His spiritual authority. So, I want to shift now to talk about the fact that being in Christ means we are also in the Spirit. And we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, for the last, I don't know, since about 2011, right after the earthquake in Haiti, I've been going to Haiti, I've made many, many trips to Haiti, uh, and our church has established a lot of ministry there, this church, Shange, that's a a ministry that we started in Haiti, it's the Shange movement, just means change, so we we bring total uh, global change, uh, preaching the gospel, planting churches, training pastors, digging water wells, starting orphanages, feeding people, giving microloans, training people in business, just in every way trying to bring spiritual, economic, social transformation to Haiti. Uh, So I developed this curriculum where I was training pastors. We had about 250 pastors that would come for a week training and... To come to the training, the pastors had to have a network of 10 or more pastors that they would take what I trained them, and then they would, and we provided materials, and then they would train other pastors. So we were effectively reaching 2,500, 3,000 pastors in Haiti with, with this training. And um, I had a translator, and I was going to be staying over for whatever, you know, I, I can't remember, I think just the flights I was leaving on Monday rather than taking off on Saturday or Sunday. And... Uh, So I asked my translator, I said, is there a church, one of these churches that would be good for me to just come in and maybe see if I could speak? And he said, well, I'll see if you can speak at my my church. So he called his pastor and his pastor agreed to it, which just that in itself is kind of funny because I'm a pastor and some missionary just said, yeah, I want to come speak in your church. Uh, I'd say, thanks, but no thanks. I don't know who you are and no, you're not going to come preach in my church. But this pastor said, sure, you can come preach. And I didn't realize it, but it was the largest church in Haiti. The most influential church in Haiti. And I met this pastor, and we just hit it off right away. We, we developed a great partnership. Every time I go to Haiti, I preach in his church. We've flown him and his worship team to America. We've had him lead uh, revivals at, at our church. He's Pastor Forge, and, and uh, the, the church he pastors is uh, in, it's in English, it's Church of the Rock. Uh, but um, I, I sat down with Pastor Forge when I first got to know him, and I'd preached. And this is kind of funny, but he, he <laughs> it, and this isn't about me patting myself on the back. It's about kind of Haitian culture and American cultures. So I preach in his church, and he came up to me and said, and he gave me like 45 minutes to preach in his church. And he said, you know, they, they have church for like four hours, right? So he said after the first time I preached, he goes, oh, next time you come, you can preach for as long as you want. I go, oh, okay, thanks. He goes, yeah, because, you know, I've heard missionaries speak before, and they're just, they're not very good preachers, but you preach like a Haitian. I said, oh, great. Well, I, I take that as a compliment. So uh, I said to Pastor Fours, I said, listen, your church, because it's, uh, I don't know if you've traveled much or been much, doing much work in the third world, but in the third world, um, even denominations that wouldn't kind of present themselves as Pentecostal are Pentecostal. Because just the, what is happening in the third world, and especially in Haiti, there's tons of demonic influence in Haiti and voodoo, and so there are tremendous power encounters and miraculous events going on all the time as part of just what people experience and what happens in the church. So I, I said to Pastor Forge, when as I got to know him, I said, Pastor Forge, there's no doubt that you, your church, you guys are very strong in the spirit, and you see the spirit moving among you. I think I could bring for you, your pastors, for the people of Haiti, really grounding in God's Word. I said, because if you have the Spirit and you don't have the Word, sometimes you just blow up. But if you have the Word and you don't have the Spirit, you just dry up. I said, there's churches in America that have the Word but not the Spirit. There's churches in Haiti that have the Spirit but not the Word. But you put them together and you have a dynamic power for fulfilling the Great Commission. And so we have partnered together. It's been pretty exciting what God has done, both here there in Haiti and how He's used Pastor Forge in our church. So I say that because Romans chapter eight, especially the first part, is all about the spirit. And what, what Paul is saying here in reference to the spirit is he's transitioning Romans five, Romans six, Romans seven, now into Romans eight. Because he's, he's kind of saying, Romans 5, this is all that's true about us. Romans 6, we've been co-crucified, we've been co-resurrected in Christ. Romans 7, we didn't look at that. But if we were doing a, just an expositional study of this, we'd, we'd look at Romans 7. Because Romans 7 says, hey, even though what's true is you've been crucified, you've been raised up with Christ, you still got a problem with sin, the flesh. And if you go try to live out your identity in Christ in your own just head knowledge, you're going to fall short because you still have this issue of indwelling sin. So how do you overcome indwelling sin so that your position in Christ of being crucified and resurrected Christ actually makes a difference in the way you live your life? It's through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what Paul says is being in Christ is being in the Spirit. Being in Christ is being in the Spirit. And we'll see how he does that here in Romans 8, starting at verse 1. Uh, the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is just a tremendous passage of Scripture. It's even more so when you understand just... Um, If you notice when I read that, this is the New American Standard version, um, there were a lot of if, 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 if. That's a conditional phrase. It's a conditional clause in uh, in the English language. In English, we only have one way of stating a conditional clause. We just say if, then. And in English, when we hear something like if, then, what we kind of assume is, well, there's certain conditions that have to be met around the if, for the then to actually be true. In, in, in Greek, there's three ways of stating a conditional clause. And then they're called first, second, third class condition. And grammatically, if you were, if you were a Greek speaker or reader, you would hear it, and it, it, it's for a point of emphasis. So the first class condition in Greek is... Translated as if, but the reality is assumed. There's no if to it, and that's why sometimes in the in the New International Version there are conditional clauses, and they're translated as since. I'll give you an example. The one Colossians chapter three is one of the verses we looked at last night. I quoted it tonight. Since. Then you've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because we have been raised up with Christ. So since we've been raised up with Christ. In the New American Standard Version, it says, If then you've been raised up with Christ. You might read that and think, Well, what if I haven't been raised up with Christ? Then this doesn't apply to me. But that's not what Paul was trying to say. He was using a first-class condition to reinforce the fact that you've actually been raised up with Christ. So here in Romans 8... Every one of these ifs are actually first-class conditions. Paul is assuming the reality of everything that he's saying here. So this gets back to what's actually true. Remember, I I think I I, I said to you you, when you're reading the Bible, if you see a promise, you claim it. If you see a command, you obey it. If you see a truth statement, you believe it. These are all truth statements. Okay. So just that as a kind of an introduction. So what are some just... Get above the weeds of the passage, looking down on it and making some observations. First of all, the truth of being in Christ and in the Spirit. So what is the truth of our position in Christ, in the Spirit? Well, this is, These are the things that are said. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. The righteous requirement of the law is actually fulfilled in us. We have the Spirit of God living in us, which means we are now in the Spirit. We have the Spirit of Christ, and we belong to Christ. Christ is in us, and our human spirit is alive because of His righteousness. He who raised Christ from the dead will actually give life to our bodies through His Spirit that lives in us. We are under obligation to the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body by means of the Spirit. We are sons of God because we're led by the Spirit. We've received the spirit of adoption, and as sons, we cry, Abba, Father. The indwelling Spirit testifies with our human spirit that we're children of God, and because we're children of God, we're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Again, someone ought to say, Amen. Amen. This, is, this is what's actually true. Every one of those statements is what's true because God says it's true, because the truest thing about us it's what God says is true. And so part of this, you know, this truth of, of our identity in Christ is, is kind of replacing false perspectives on ourself with what's actually true. Kind of, kind of creating new neural pathways of thinking about who I am. I, I'm, I'm not just a second-class person. I'm not a person who's stuck in sin. I'm not a person who's a victim of... Uh, a perpetual victim of, of, of my dysfunctional family. I'm not a person who the Christian life works for somebody else, but it doesn't work for me. I'm not a person who's just dumb or stupid or just a sinner or just weak or any of those lies that we might have been told by the devil or even maybe by coaches or teachers or even by parents. Those are all lies. What's true? What God says is true. What God says is true you we start breaking these things down there, it's, it's pretty phenomenal all that God says is true. So I would just encourage you, just maybe tomorrow, the next day, just spend some time with the Lord. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17, and just write those out for yourself. Read them in the Bible yourself and write them down, and then say them back to God. This is who I am. God, thank you that now there's no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. Thank you that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Thank you that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled in me. Thank you that the Holy Spirit now lives inside of me. Thank you that I now have a spirit-controlled mind. Thank you that I now have the spirit living in me, and he's the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And since you raised Jesus from the dead, you're going to give life to my body. Thank you that I can put to death the misdeeds of the body by means of the Spirit. Thank you that I'm a son of God because I'm led by the Spirit. Thank you that your spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. Thank you that I can call you Abba, Daddy, Father. Thank you that I'm a co-heir with Jesus Christ. See, that's true. So when you pray that way, you're just praying truth back to God, and you're agreeing with God, and now you're kind of giving the Holy Spirit opportunity to renew your mind, create those new neural pathways of, of thinking. So there is a truth here of being in Christ means we're in the Spirit. Here's a second observation. Your mind matters. Your mind matters. Um, In Romans 8, 5 through 7, it says this, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh... For those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God and it does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. So it's talking about the flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh, spirit. And what is repeated is what determines whether you're in the flesh or in the Spirit? The mind. Your mind. What we think about determines the quality of our spiritual experience. We can think ourselves to death or we can think ourselves to life. It's what we, what we dwell on, what we put our minds on. If, if you could imagine this, um, this little podium as a, as a stove, a, a gas stove and there are burners here. I turn this burner up full blast flame's coming up. take a pot of water, and I put the pot of water on there. What's going to happen eventually with this water? It's going to boil. So, the water's boiling, and there's steam coming up. And just for the sake of illustration, uh, I don't want steam coming out of that pot. So, I get a lid, and I put the lid on top of it. But the pressure starts building up inside, and the steam starts escaping from the sides. So, I can get a Bigger lid, heavier lid, and put that on top. And then the pressure builds up over a little more time and steam starts coming up. I could keep looking for bigger lids. What's a surefire way I could stop steam coming out of that pot? Just turn down the heat. Okay, so here's the illustration. The fire boils the water, which produces the steam. The fire of our thoughts boils the water of our emotion, which produces the steam of our behavior. You can try to control your behavior with lids, that's rules, do's and don'ts, legalism, religion. Or you can go to the source and change the inside, change your thinking. And, and when your thinking changes, it affects your emotions, which affects your actions. This is, a, this is a biblical principle. It's also a psychological principle. It's cognitive behavior. You change your mind and change some actions, and you change your life. So, when we think, it, 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 and, you know, a lot of us just don't think about what we think. <laughs> we're so busy doing life, we don't think about what we think. But I, I would be willing to bet, for some of us, we would be shocked if we were able to step outside of ourselves and just see what we think. All the negative, critical, worrisome unbelieving, judgmental thoughts that just spin in our head. Well, they don't just stay spinning in our head. It, it affects our heart. And then it affects our actions. Because remember what did Jesus say in Mark chapter 7? He says, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out. Because out of the heart, and then he lists all this stuff. And then by implication, you don't change your... Your spiritual life, external to internal, you change it internal to external. So by our minds being yielded to the Spirit and set on the Spirit, thinking God's thoughts after Him, that's how we can affect our spiritual life. That's why Philippians 4 says, whatever's lovely, whatever's pure, whatever's of good repute, whatever's praiseworthy, set your mind on these things. And that's why Colossians 3 says, since then we've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above. Set your mind on the things above. 1 Peter 1.13, the very first scripture I ever memorized as a brand new Christian. It says, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Mind, mind, mind. That's, see, our, our, our minds matter. So if we want to live spirit-filled lives We've got to have a spirit-controlled mind, and we can have it. That's, see, the devil lies to us and says, we can't. I just can't do anything about these obsessive thoughts. Yes, you can. That's a lie, because you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and you can yield your mind to the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit can help you control your thoughts. And the mind set on the Spirit, Romans 8 says, is life and peace so your mind matters. Um, here's a third observation. The Spirit produces life. That's what He does inside of us and through us and out of us. Uh, verse 9 says, however, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. So every, every believer, if, you're, if you believe in Jesus this Holy Spirit's come into your life. Remember, we looked last night at, at Ephesians 1.13, You also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So, the very moment that our we listened and actually believed the gospel. So, whenever that was, five when you're five, when you're fifteen, when you're fifty, whenever it happened, that very moment the Holy Spirit came into your life. So. You're not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to Him. If Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, these bodies are affected by sin, and they're going to wear out and die. And God's going to give us a resurrection body. Hallelujah. Even though you know Jason and I still are trying to work on our old bodies in the gym, we were in there today working out, talking, sharing stories about how we're not as strong as we used to be, and things ache when we do stuff, but we're still, you know. What do you think your body's going to look like in heaven, man? There you go. It's going to be ripped, man. Yeah, it's going to be good. So, we're going to have these resurrection bodies, but right now the body's dead because of sin, but it says, but your spirit, the real you, is alive. Because of righteousness, because we've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So our spirit is alive. Ephesians 2, 5, we've been made alive with Christ. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does, so it's since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So just just stop, think about that. The very spirit who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you. Okay. Now here's Paul's logic, this Holy Spirit logic, because he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. So these are the words that the Spirit gave him, and he put them down. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So where the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is going to give us that same resurrection life, and where is that resurrection life going to be applied, according to that verse? Where is He going to give it to us? In our bodies. Now, the last time I checked, everything that makes me, me, is somehow contained in my body. Now, I'm more than a body. Because you know, we're body, soul, and spirit. But my soul and my spirit are somehow inseparably connected to my body, at least for right now. So the spiritual life that the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of resurrection, where He gives it to us is in our body. This is more than just the promise of resurrection in the future. This is the promise of resurrection life now. Now. Um, it's like, um, you know, There, sometimes when people have a, a certain amount of, of wealth and they want to distribute it properly to their heirs, they set up a trust. And uh, some trusts are set up so that when the person passes... The recipient has to reach a certain age before they can access the trust. But other trusts are set up as soon as the person passes, all of that is made available to them. We don't have to wait to heaven to get the power of the Spirit working in our lives. It's available to us right now. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, and He wants to produce life in us. So part of this, and, and this is what I'm really going to try to talk about tomorrow night, which is the last night in our teaching series, is how do we possess our position? How do This is all wonderful truth. How do we live it out? How do we actually experience this more? Well, just letting you know, it's by means of the Holy Spirit, Learning to walk by the Spirit, learning to be filled with the Spirit daily, learning to experience a relationship with God moment by moment by moment, not Sunday to Sunday or retreat to retreat or big experience to big experience, but every day and even moment by moment throughout the day. Experiencing the glory of the grind, even when you're just putting one foot in front of the other, but there's actual spiritual life happening in that experience, learning how to do that. That's what we're going to, we'll talk about that tomorrow night. But Romans 8 here saying that the Holy Spirit produces life in our body. And he relates it then, and this is um, my last point. Well, my second last point. Don't trust a preacher when he says your last point. He always goes on for 15 more minutes. Obeying the Spirit. So he says, um, verse 12, So then... In you know, I've I've been making these references to grammar, but here's an example of where grammar matters. So, in if we were just in English, we're having a conversation, and I'm telling you some information, and then I go, "So then, what do you think is coming up next?" What's that? Some kind of statement? What else? A conclusion. Like, because I just said this, this is now the reality, or this is what we're supposed to do, or this is what we're to conclude, or this is how we're supposed to understand something. The so-then so is a grammatical connection between all that's been set up to this point. So wh- what's the other side of the so-then? We're under obligation because of what... We've learned so far about the Holy Spirit. No condemnation. law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus set us free from the law of sin and death. The full requirement of the law is fulfilled in us. We have the righteousness of God in us. We have the mind uh, uh, of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Even though our bodies are dead, our spirits are alive because of Christ's righteousness. And the very Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is producing spiritual life in us. So then, we're under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh but by the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. Our spiritual obligation isn't to keep living fleshly carnal lives. Our spiritual obligation is to live in the Spirit. And and what is one of the things that one does who lives in the Spirit? They put to death the misdeeds of the body. Uh, Now, I know I look very youthful. (laughs) <laughs> but but um, I am uh, 66 years old, but it's okay because i got the body of a 65-year-old. So <laughs> being a man of my age, I was raised on all the television shows of the 60s. And one of the really popular shows that I liked in the 60s was a show called Kung Fu. Now, David Carradine was the actor who played the part of the main guy in the in the television series, Kung Fu. But there was actually some, what's that? Kane, Kane yes. There was actually some controversy because there was another actor that everyone thought should have gotten the part who was an, actually an Asian actor. In fact, this particular person, even today, when you think about martial arts, this is the guy you think about. And that guy is? Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. See, you all know. You're a bunch of old people, too. so. One of the reasons we still think about Bruce Lee is he died very mysteriously. Bruce Lee was in Hong Kong filming a movie, and he died. And his autopsy, this is the truth, is very inconclusive. They, they don't know if he, it was a, heart, a cardiac arrest or some type of drug-related cardiac arrest, or one of the theories that circulated, are you ready for it, was that Bruce Lee was a victim of dim mock. What's that? Death, death punch. Dim mock translates as death punch. And the, and the mythology is there is this punch, wah, that you, you hit. You like the way I did that? Wah. Yeah. Like Bruce Lee, if you got Bruce Lee, it's like, wah. So Bruce Lee, so if you do the dim mock punch, if you, the person who knew how to do it, it would hit somebody. It would not even leave a bruise on the outside but the way that they punched him would cause whatever internal organs were on the other side, inside, to slowly die. They would, over the next 48 hours, actually die. And so some people thought somebody hit Bruce Lee with a dim mock punch, and that's what killed him. Because mock means death punch. You know what we have to do, according to Romans 8? By the Spirit, do a dim mock punch to the flesh. You've got to put it to death. Was well, that a good illustration or not? Man, come on. You gotta, I got to get some credit for that illustration. Gosh, <laughs> it tired me out just giving it. Jeez, I need to sit down. <laughs> so, because Paul is saying, see, this is where you can get sideways on some of this teaching. Because some, some people say, oh, you know, it's all God. It's because you're in Christ and the Holy Spirit, and all you got to do is just let go. And let God. I'm, so let go and let God. You know what that leads to? Just kind of sitting around waiting for God to give you a holy zap. Then other people say, no, it's not. They, they, they go too far the other way. And it's all about you working the program and disciplining the program. And A plus B equals C. And that's Christianity. And it's just me. And then that just gets so burdensome. I just can't keep all the rules. And I'm worn out from trying to do what I need to do to become a holy person. Well, it's not let go and let God, and it's not you doing it. It's you, by means of the Spirit, putting to death the misdeeds of the body. And even that, the you, is not the old you, but the new you who's been crucified with Christ and raised up with Christ and is alive because of righteousness. You see? This is why biblical Christianity is different than any religious system in the world. It is a, it's is—it's the new covenant. That's what Jesus said. It's a new covenant because it's the, the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. But we participate with the Spirit, and we, by the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body. And, as a result, we live. We experience life. But if we don't, it says, if you don't and you just live in the flesh, you will experience death. So... The last point, and I'm meaning the last point. We have spirit-led intimacy with the Trinity. Because we're in Christ and in the Spirit, we have spirit-led intimacy with the Trinity. It says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God, for you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit, that we are children of God and, and heirs, heirs of God, fellow, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, and that's first-class condition, we're going to suffer with Christ. That's part of the package. And we're going to be glorified with him too. So because we have the Holy Spirit, he leads us, he confirms to us that we're children of God. He even speaks out through us, Abba, Father, this intimacy with God the Father. And then we share as co Heirs with Jesus Christ, if Father, Son, and Spirit, this Spirit-led intimacy with the fullness of God. That's our birthright as, as followers of Jesus Christ. When we're in Christ, we're in the Spirit. And being in the Spirit means we are actually led by the Spirit into this Spirit-led intimacy with God. The um, the word, the term here, led by the Spirit, it, it's there's a simple Greek word, it's... Uh, Ago, but there's a, there's, a, there's a noun, prosagoge, and that noun means someone who leads you. To be led is Ago, someone who leads you is a prosagoge, and in the ancient world, the, the, the prosagoge was a person that would actually make the introduction of someone who was coming to see the king. So this, the person wanted to see the king would be outside. The person was, oh, you want to see the king? He would go, the king, someone wants to see you. The king says, yes, yeah, show him in. The prosegoge would take that person and then introduce them to the king. Um, I met my wife at, at, I, at UCLA. I was uh, on staff working with Campus Crusade for Christ, and she was a student. I mentioned that, and I told you we did a little after hour discipleship, and we fell in love and got married. That, that's my little joke, yeah. Uh, so uh, I met her through someone she went to high school with. It was a, a, someone that was a year older and who was a student in our Campus Crusade ministry. And then when uh, we met at a football game, a UCLA football game, she was there and the guy, I, student, I was with the student, I was mentoring him. And he said, oh, this is a girl I went to high school with. And we walked over and he introduced us. And because he introduced us, we started seeing each other on campus. I started giving her rides to church. I tried to get one of the guys that I was discipling to take her out. I thought she was really cute, but thought she was too young for me. The guy never took her out. And I thought, well, I'm going to take her out. And I took her out, and I dated, and then after she graduated, we got married, and we've been married now for 37 years, three kids, and three grandkids, all because of Pete. Pete was a prosagoge. He introduced me to her. The Holy Spirit is our prosagoge who introduces us to the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and leads us into intimacy with the Father, Son, and Spirit. And we have the Spirit living inside of us. So, being in Christ is being in the Spirit. And so, not only do we have all that's true of Christ, we got all the work of the Holy Spirit and ministry of the Spirit available to us because we are in Christ. Because being in Christ means you're in the Spirit. Let me pray. Father, Thank you for this study. This is one of my favorite studies. It's just so awesome. Even as I see these scriptures and talk about them, it's exciting for me to realize what's true about me. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you live inside of me and in us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you uh, have done your work in us, that you continue to do your work in us, and you empower us to live new lives. You produce your fruit through us. You, you lead us into intimacy. You, you bear witness with our spirit that we're children of God. Holy Spirit, we pray that you just complete in the work that you've begun in us and each of us here as, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Fill us up so that we radiate your fruit and, and we're bold witnesses of Christ as Jesus promised we would be when we have your power in our lives. So we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.